My intent was to continue in Colossians, but with so many people here, and we have some guests and whatnot, we'll go through the, uh, a little bit of a different lesson this, tonight. You guys need anything? No? Okay. So, I do want to cover the gospel because uh, we've been covering it from different parts of the Bible. And we'll pick up on Colossians, the second part of it next time. And, or maybe we'll go back to it tonight. But I, I want to touch, touch on, on, on John 3, Romans 3, and then go through maybe the, the rest of Colossians. That we can go back through it as a summary. So we're going to look. Yeah, there we go. Do you know what we're all about? The gospel is simple, and yet it bears a complexity uh, where you have to think beyond just what you've been taught or what is, you know, Jesus died on a cross, paid for sins, okay? Who's Jesus? Why did he have to die on a cross? What does it mean for him to pay for sins? Why is it that confessing him as Lord and not Savior that you're saved? Why is it that you don't ask for salvation to be saved, but rather confess him as Lord? What, you know, there's a lot of questions you have to ask yourself, right? To understand, like, what am I doing when I get saved? Like, what is that? Because I'm not just asking for, uh, you know, God save me. He never, ever says to ask for salvation, right? He says, have a conversation with me about what I did and tell me you believe it and convince me from your heart and speak it through your mouth that you actually believe it, right? Not just speak it with your mouth and not just believe it in your heart and say it in your head, right? Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? But the heart, we confess, the heart results in righteousness and confession results in salvation. So you cannot escape the law of faith. And faith always comes through the flesh. So you can't just say it in the head. It, you have to, ex, it, faith without works is dead. You have to exercise faith through the flesh, through your body, through your mouth, to have a conversation with the Father. He says in his word to be saved. And the conversation is it, God, I'm a sinner, please save me. That's not the conversation. That means nothing, right? Satan knows God exists, whatever. It's, there's a, there's a, there's a, he says, confess Jesus is Lord. Well, how did he get to be Lord? Right? He had to be born. He had to live. He had to die. What did that mean? Right? Then he had to, he had to be raised and then he had to be exalted. So by confessing him as Lord, you're actually confessing everything, which means you understand everything. Therefore, you're having a rational adult conversation with the father about his son. Right? You're agreeing with him, which is what the word confess means, to agree. So you can't just say a magic spell and be saved. Right? You're having a conversation where God expects you to believe something. Not just believe the magic spell of, oh, say this magic spell and you're saved. That's not the point. He wants you to believe what he did about his son. If you don't believe it, just read the book of John. Jesus is constantly, say, constantly speaking to that reality. Right? 
believe what the Father is doing through me. Believe this, believe that. He's constantly pointing to the fact that believe the Father sent me, believe the Father sent me, right? So this is the reality of the situation. So it's important to understand what the gospel is. And these texts sort of lay that foundation. And you go to Colossians and you can see the rest of the story because there's more than just our need. Us in our selfishness, think of us. We think, oh God, save us, save us. But what about God? What did it cost God to go through this mess, right? What did it cost God? Not just his emotions, not just his son, but it cost him his integrity for 4,000 years, which is exactly what you're going to read tonight in the book of Romans. Because he passed over sins previously committed, he looked like he may have done something wrong. And so that's why he was excited to publicly demonstrate that he was actually righteous, finally in history for the first time since the fall of Adam, because he killed a man. Because he didn't kill Adam. And he was supposed to do it, and he didn't do it. God said, you eat this, you die, and he didn't kill him. Somebody said, well, it's a spiritual death. No. It's an eternal death. And the problem is God promised himself salvation in life. And you can't do that if you're a righteous God without killing somebody in his place. And no one could figure out exactly how that was going to happen because it didn't happen the next day. It didn't happen that moment. So what is, what is Satan to the brethren? The accuser. the accuser. Why is he accusing? Because it looked like God didn't do what was right. This is what Romans is going to tell us tonight. So before you even think about yourself, you have to first ask yourself, can I trust this God in his integrity? And this is what God wants you and I to know. Can you trust me? Am I exactly a righteous God? Because if he's, if he's righteous, but not loving, then, well, he might do what's right and then choose to can us away and push us off to the side. If he's loving and not righteous, well, then... He could love us for a while, get annoyed with us and toss us out. But he's communicating that he's a loving God first, which put him in a dilemma, right? And the dilemma is stated right here in our text in John 3 that we're going to read eventually. God so loved the world, right? That he had to kill his son. So there's the problem. Problem, love. Love is a big, big problem because it resulted in him killing his son, Solution. So you have a problem, solution, result, passage. Problem, God's love. Solution, killing his son. Result, hey, you believe this big crazy story? You can escape damnation and enter into eternal life. How grand. So it's that simple. Right, but that is a problem, solution there. Right? That most people skip right over. Oh, God so loved the world that he gave his only God. What does that mean? Why did he have to give his son in the first place? Because there was a problem. And the problem was God's not permitted to love. If a judge just says, you know, I, I feel loving today, Mr. Murderer Man. Um, you know what? You're off the hook. Walk right out of the courtroom. We would say, what a sweet, benevolent judge that was to love that murderous killing machine. Right? Right? And all the people sitting there expecting, expecting justice mouth would be open and they would be horribly offended and what would they do to the judge? They accuse the judge of what? Unrighteousness. If you were a mother and your child was killed and the judge just said, 
walk away. You would say, you're an unjust judge, you're a disgrace to your trade, get off the throne, someone else take his place. Would you not? That's exactly what Satan did. Nominate me. <laughs> Satan said, I nominate myself. <laughs> and why did he nominate himself? Because, he was because in Ezekiel 28, he clearly describes that he had an ephod on his chest of nine stones plated in gold. And what is an ephod? Who's the only person in the Bible who wears an ephod? He's a priest. Satan was a priest over the law. That's why he likes righteousness. That's why to destroy the works of the devil was equal to, de- to canceling the law. That's why they're tied together. They're tied together because when he destroyed the law, he destroyed the power of the devil because the letter kills and the devil kills. Right? But the spirit gives life. The devil doesn't give life. The son gives life. In other words, it was one priesthood for another. Satan's priesthood for God's priesthood. You can read it for yourself in Ezekiel 28. He was a priest because he wore an ephod. And the only people who wear ephods are priests. And so that's why he was constantly appealing to the law. He was constantly accusing the brethren based upon the law. That's how you accuse the brethren. You don't accuse them based upon your opinion. You accuse them based upon a foundation of authority that God had to listen to. And so that's the discussion. Jesus is trying to school Nicodemus on a simple reality that before we even get to that discussion, there's a bottom line truth that I absolutely love in the text. It's a bottom line truth. The bottom line is you don't see or enter heaven unless you are born from above or you're born of the Spirit, which is one and the same. So the bottom line is, no matter what all the rigmarole and all the religion and all the nonsense and all the ages of formation of man's worship, all that means nothing if you're not born of God from the Spirit, from heaven, which qualifies you to make you a citizen of heaven. If you're not born of God, as Jesus himself said, if you're not born from above, you do not see it, you do not enter it. Bottom line. Would you say it's a bottom line truth? It's a bottom line. You don't get in, you do not get in if you do not have his gift of being born from above. So Nicodemus is perplexed. We'll read it. And he says, how can these things be finally after his arrogance? He finally pays attention after mouthing off. Because Jesus is saying, before we get to all the rigmarole of God has love and me dying and you believing this to be saved, let's get to the bottom line, Nicodemus. It's not about the Jews or religion or the law. It's about being born from above. And that's true from Abraham's time, from Adam's time, all the way to the end of the time. You have to be born from above, period. Period. That's the only way to be saved. Now, the question is, how do I get God to birth me from above new. First in the spirit and second in the flesh, right? Because we all oh, wait for the resurrection. resurrection. Resurrection is nothing compared to being born from above in the spirit because spiritually is me. The body's a shell, right? The new body's a shell. The old body's a shell. They're nothing compared to the, to the person born from above. Here and now. Salvation is now. So, That's what your focus has to be on, right? Your focus has to be on, I need to figure out how to get God to birth me 
from above, as 1 John 5, 1 puts it, you know, the, those who are from the birther love those born from the birther. It's a funny way of saying it. But that's the way it, it doesn't say that in the English translation, but that's the Greek, the birther. God is called the birthing one or the birther. <laughs> because he's the one birthing children of God from his own divine nature, being partners of the divine nature, children of God in the truest sense. Or as Galatians 3 says, sons of God. That's why you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You're not a co-heir because you get a resurrected body. You're a co-heir because you're made new spiritually and then you get a resurrected body. And the resurrected body just simply is of the same quality as the spirit and they match. Right now we don't match. So in John 3, he says, there was a man, the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I'm gonna bust through some of this. This man came to the Jews or to Jesus, excuse me, by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs. Keyword signs, not miracles, because that's what a miracle was. It was something pointing to something. Signs that you do unless God is with him. A sign is 20 miles to Nashville, 10 miles to Nashville, welcome to Nashville. His miracles were pointing to a reality. The miracles weren't the point. They pointed to something. They pointed to the fact that he was the son of God, the Messiah, the the one that was to come. And not just the signs of miracles, but the signs of, that he told John the Baptist, preaching the gospel to the poor, doing all these other things that weren't just miracle things. There are many other signs than just power. There was compassion, love, and a a, a quality of of how he viewed people in the sense that he valued everybody as potentially being able to be saved and thus equally God's children, regardless of their social status, which was certainly different than his time. And so he says, we know you've come from God because no one can do these signs unless God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, he didn't mess around and say, oh, that's nice. That's a, yeah, you're right about that. And we give you the technical details. He said, let me tell you something, Nicodemus, let's get down to the brass tacks. Truly, truly, I say to you, and that truly, truly is aletheia, aletheia, which is absolute truth. This is the absolute truth, Nicodemus. I want you to pay attention. This is the absolute truth. Pay attention. Right? I say to you, unless a person, one, is born from above. The word again is from above in the Greek. That person or he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yeah, but what if you cover your eyes and you can like walk in and just hang? No, I think that makes the point. You cannot see it. Right? And then Nicodemus and his little self says, um, said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb? Uh, or he cannot to be entered to the second time someone wouldn't be born. Can he? He's like obviously being sarcastic and rhetorical. And Jesus answered, let me tell you the truth, Nicodemus, the absolute truth. You said I'm a man cut from God, right? So pay attention. I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's obviously when you're born, at least you just had a baby, you pop the water, the baby comes out. It's a very simple truth. He makes that clear right here in the text in a moment. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, I say you're born from above, thus born of God's spirit. That person or he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot enter. You can't see it, can't enter it, right? Simple as that. You're not gonna see it and you're not gonna enter it if you're not born from above and therefore born of the Holy Spirit, of God's spirit. And then he answers that. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That answers the water thing. Yeah, you're born of your mom, Nicodemus. You gotta be born of a woman, then you gotta be born of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Right? Water, mom, spirit, God. Don't be amazed, I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, everyone who, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is to say, when you look outside and you see the wind blowing, you don't see the wind. You don't really hear the wind unless it's blowing very hard. All you see is the movement of the trees. So you know that something happened to the trees. There's something affecting it, though you cannot see it. You can see dust. You cannot see the wind. You cannot see the air. You see right through it, all the way to the stars. Right? So it is with the Spirit. When the Spirit makes a person new, He comes in out of nowhere. You don't see it take place. He rips out the old Spirit, removes the heart of stone, right? Removes it, takes your old man out. The Spirit, your mother and father of birth, is taken out and removed and is gone forever. Killed with Jesus Christ. Crucified with Jesus Christ. Right? And then he makes a brand new spirit, God does, and places that in you. And that is the person that he is, considers his child. And that is a real person. If you die at that moment, the only thing that's left is that person God created. Not some other old aspect of who you were. Don't worry, there's boxing. <laughs> the natives are restless in there. The kids. You understand? There's nothing left of the old man. The old man is gone. The old man is dead. The old man has been crucified with Christ. He's been removed. The heart's removed. The mind's removed. Everything's gone. It's a total clean out. And then in that moment, he makes you new and puts you back in the body. And now you have this dilemma where the inner man is bound to the law of God and the outer man is bound to the law of sin. That's the flesh. Romans 7. Now there's a conflict. There wasn't a conflict. Both were fallen. Then there's a conflict. My spirit is bound to, to loving God and is a slave of righteousness, as Romans 6 puts it, and is bound to the law of God, as Romans 7 puts it, and my flesh, the law of sin. And we'll get to the practical implication of that because I think it's important to tie that in tonight at the end. And so he says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Finally asked an intelligent question. Okay, I'm going to humble myself and let you explain to me something. And the funny thing is Jesus doesn't explain it. He's given him enough information. He's like, you'll read it later in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 4. And Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Peter 1 and 2 and 2 Peter 1 and 4. And many other passages, you know, 2 Corinthians 5. Galatians 3, huh? Galatians 5. Yeah. So, Jesus answered, said to him, you're the teacher of Israel, you don't know these things, right? You don't understand this? He's, what he's doing is he's, he's humbling him. This guy's supposed to be the machizel, right? The man, the el teacher ao, and he doesn't understand the most basic truth the most basic truth going back to Genesis, going back to the beginning, was that a man has to be born from God in order to enter and see the kingdom and you don't even understand the basic truth. So every effort you got going, if it doesn't relate to that in your head, is in some way tainted and perverted. If every aspect of your relationship with God doesn't think from that thought, you are perverted in how you relate to God 100%. 
Because that's the bottom line. Right? That's the bottom line. If you don't understand the depths of that, which the New Testament clearly teaches, then your relationship with God is tainted by some form of error, which is why we're going through Colossians. It says don't be deluded by those errors. Ephesians, don't be tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. Right? Rather than holding on to the head who is Christ. So he's, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. That would be God the Father and, and the Word back in the time, Jesus now in the Spirit, the we there. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, uh, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? In other words, I told you of things that were spiritual that happened on earth and you're struggling to believe the most simple concept of God having to make you new to be fit for his presence. These are things that Jesus constantly said that would bewilder them. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? John 5.20. Unless you're right. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? Matthew 5.48. So how can a person be perfect exactly as their heavenly father is perfect? How is that even possible? Oh, you've got to be born from above. I, that's how. Duh. In other words, it's something you cannot fabricate. It's only something you can... You can talk to God and believe what he's given in his promise and he does without your permission. He does it to you. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he preordained you. You're his workmanship. You're not your workmanship. You're his workmanship. You understand? So... It's something to rejoice in. It's something to say, wow, that's amazing. And Nicodemus is like, oh, it's over. So, <laughs> so he says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven that's the son of man. And I don't want to go into this at length, but it's a simple reality that in Hebrews chapter 10, and without turning there, I just quote it to you. The verse one says, for the law can never take away, make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot make perfect those who draw near, right? That's the sentence. And in between that law, which is a shower of good things to come, not the very form of things, can never by the, you know, the sacrifices, blah, 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 make perfect those who draw near. So the sentence is the law can never make perfect those who draw near, right? And then he says, and you didn't desire that because they're only reminders. The sacrifices were simply reminders, a big game that did nothing. No sins were paid for. No sins were ever atoned for by the blood of animals. Not one sin was ever atoned for. What was the point? Verse three, a reminder. That's what it was. A big fat reminder for 1,200 years. Hey, you're a sinner and there's no payment for your sins. You need salvation apart from this act of killing an animal. That was the whole point. It was a big monopoly game. It was monopoly money. Right? The law, they killed an animal and it did nothing. If you go to the store and try to buy something with monopoly money, it does nothing. It will do nothing. And he gave them a 1,200 year game that did nothing but point to the fact that they needed something other than the law to save them. Right? That's why he says in verse 4 and following, you know, he says, but when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifices and sins. Go to the next. Was it? Uh, yeah. But yeah, before, before it's impossible to. Therefore, when he comes to the world, 
he says, sacrifice for offering you have not desired, but behold, a body, a soma, you prepared for me. And this is, who is this talking? This is the word talking to the Father with the Spirit there. This is what I call nine months before Christmas. Because this is the conversation right before Mary was implanted. This is the word, well, not Jesus, because Jesus wasn't born yet, but the word, the Spirit of God, God himself, before he was named Jesus by the Father in human flesh, the word was speaking to the Father. And the Father says, the word says, look, behold, look, a soma. The word soma is the word body or embryo in the Greek. It's not sperma, which is the word for sperm, which is in 1 John 3. It's the word for body. So that's the sperm and the egg. God made a sperm and an egg based on, upon this dirt complex body. Minerals, you know, magnesium, iron, blah, blah, blah. Right? Same dirt he made Adam out of, he made this physical body, this soma. And he says, behold, a body prepared for me. And then the Holy Spirit grabs it and the word gets inside. And that's the Philippians 2 moment where he did not hold his deity, something to be held on to. He didn't grasp a hold of it, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Philippians 2, bam, right there. Then the Holy Spirit takes that soma down and places it in Mary. She's like, whoop, what just happened? And then the Holy Spirit's like, don't worry, that was me. You're going to have a kid? And she's like, what, you know? And so... The whole nine yards. So this is what this talk about. No man has ever ascended into heaven, but there was only one human being, one human, one man who's ever descended from heaven. A soma. He was in an embryo form, yes, but he was a man. Nonetheless, because he was an embryo. And he did descend from heaven and he was placed in Mary and he was born. So that's what this is talking about. It's a very simple. It's a rabbit trail, but nonetheless, it helps you hopefully understand John chapter three. Why he would say that. Then he says this, Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and whatnot. So he simply quotes something that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with when they rebelled against Moses again and the serpents came out of the ground and started biting them and they were on a clock. This was a symbol. Remember, the Old Testament was a shadow of heavenly things, right? So if I'm human and I get bit by a snake, I'm on a clock unto death, right? Now, when we're born, we're on a clock unto death. It's just a longer clock. But on a snake bite you, it could be a few hours or a day, right? So they get bit. All these snakes pop out of the ground. They're biting people, and people begin to, now they're on the clock. So they quickly make a serpent of bronze. They stick it on the pole, and now it says, if you just look at that and believe that by looking at it, that God will save you from death temporally. Not eternal death, not eternal death. He won't save you. Temporal death you can be saved from through this little game we're going to play called look at the serpent on the pole and believe God put him there. Right? This is the game we're going to play. And if you believe that, then we're, you can be temporally saved. Not eternally saved, temporally. No, we'll just wait. So, they do that, lots of people do, they repent, they look at the serpent, and, and they, get, they, they say, say temporally. Not eternally, temporally. Right? That was a, an image of this reality. God was going to have to put Christ on the cross and pay for sin. Right? 
And if we believe that whole thing, that he then would save us from eternal death. That was a temporal thing. So Jesus is using this little Sunday school lesson to Nicodemus about in Numbers about when they got bit in the wilderness. And he says, so whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So Nicodemus should get the understand. So if something hangs on a tree, the Old Testament says in the, old, in the law, if, something, if a person hangs on a tree, he's cursed. So you're saying you're going to hang on a tree, you're going to be cursed, and you're going you're gonna to take the place of the serpent? Huh. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for sins, which is why when God put him on the cross, what did Pilate write above his name? King of the Jews. What did God put above Jesus on the cross? The law. He nailed the law to the cross. Canceling the law. Because now anything you might do against the law, it's already been, he's paid for the entire book. The whole book, right there. So he canceled it out, just like Hebrews says. Just like Ephesians 2 says. Just like Colossians says. It's done. So he says that, and that's why he says this. Great thing, right? For God so loved the world. Here's the dilemma. And this would have been like the keynote for Nicodemus' ears to perk up if he had any, any intellect at all. Because this would have been something he never would have guessed to be true. This was a new revelation. Profound and dumbfounding. To us, we're like, yeah, it's behind first base all the time. You know, it's like, no, this was huge. For God so loved the world that he gave, or he gave his only son, unto what? Unto death. A murderous, horrible, slow, miserable death. Oh, and by the way, if you believe all that, you will not perish. You'll be saved from damnation but you will have eternal life. You'll have new life or i.e. born from above because that's the same thing, right? You'll have new life. So he sums it up. That's the summary. So then you say, okay, is there somewhere in the Bible that tells me about this dilemma of John three 16? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Romans chapter three does in fact tell us that moment. Thank you, Alexa, for asking that question. Oh, was it? maybe it's your toes. Toes out. John chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, just as a summary, he says, what are we better than they, the Jews better than the Greeks? Of course not, not at all, for we have already been, uh, already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So I make that point. Not to go through 9 through, through uh, 18, because he's just kind of picking verses out of the air, uh, yeah, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one's good, no one understands. No one seeks for God, blah, 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 right? So he's like, see my point? The Old Testament validates the reality that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So you're not special being Jewish. You have to be saved the same way a Gentile is saved. So, and he says, well, okay, but what about the law? What about those who keep the law? Well, verse 19 clarifies that really clearly. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Okay, so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world will become under God's judgment. Accountable God is hupo crino, under the judgment of God. So I know we're moving fast, but just track with me here. If you have a question, we can ask it. Um, if the law was sitting here and a Jew was sitting here, 
Because the law has never spoken to us because we weren't born under the law. No one was ever born under the law since Jesus died. Because right? the law was canceled. So, but if we were in a room watching the law personified, i.e. Satan representing the law, and a person sitting on the other side of the couch, and the person was a Jewish person born under that law, and they were having a conversation and we were watching it. Because that's the context here. The context is we Gentiles are watching someone born under the law have a conversation with the law. We would watch the conversation and we would watch the Jewish person or the Israelite counter the law and constantly defend himself. And the law would result in this to this person. It says that that person's mouth would be closed. And the realization that the Jew or the Israelite would come to understand is this. That everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles, are all under God's judgment Period. Period. That would be the conclusion. That's the point of the law. Right? Because this is what he's about to tell us. Because by the works of the law, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight or proclaimed or made righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the what? So let me ask you a trick question. What comes through the law? Okay, knowledge of sin. So what's the purpose of the law? Bring the knowledge of sin. That's right. Can it save you? No. It tells you right there it cannot do it. So no matter what you do or what you think, the law can do nothing for you. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Right? So, you say, okay, then how is a person saved? And he goes on to tell us this magnificent thing. But now apart from the law. Oh, it has to be apart from the law. Was there any human sacrifice in the law? No. Any humans, God said, kill this man for your sins? No. no. So it had to be apart from the law. So apart from the law, God's righteousness, or the righteousness of God, is now manifested. Right? It's exposed to the world fully. It was talked about, witnessed by the law and the prophets all along. But now it's manifested clearly. Whose righteousness are we talking about here? Yours? We're talking about God's. Why are we talking about God's? Because His righteousness was in question. Our righteousness was nothing. We had none. But His righteousness was in question. Why? For God so loved the world. It didn't say for God watched Adam sin and killed him and stayed, stayed righteous. It said God loved him. He didn't kill him. He gave him a promise. He promised him salvation to crush the serpent's head and bruise his heel and and solve the problem. And by the way, Adam and Eve believed him because in chapter four, verse one, even if you take out the will to help of the Lord, because it's in italics, it's not actually there. It says, behold, I've gotten a man child, Yahweh. She thought she birthed, she thought Cain, <laughs> rude awakening. She thought Cain <laughs> was Yahweh. She thought this is the guy who's going to crush Satan's head. I birthed him. She thought it. It says it right there in the Hebrew. Premature. It was like, only a few thousand years premature. And yeah, she was wrong. <laughs> he was unfortunately a child of the devil and, and that didn't work out for, for her so well. Broken heart. So anyway, verse 22, it says this righteousness of God or even this righteousness of God 
is through the faith of, and this is not in Christ, this is of Christ, it's the genitive, it's possessive, Greg's car, not Greg is in the car. This is through the faith of Christ. God's righteousness is established not by me believing in Christ. God's righteousness is established because Jesus Christ believed the Father. Read the book, Gospel of John, right? I believe the Father, I follow the Father, I do what the Father wants, I'm pleasing the Father, everything he says, I, I do it. If I see him working, I enter into that work. He was the, the author perfecter of faith. He believed the Father, and therefore he walked the walk. What he said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. Why? He believed the Father that God would pay for sins and raise him from the dead. The promise was, I believe you that you'll raise me from the dead. You'll exalt me back up to the place I had before the world was. John 17, right? The one and two, so forth. So he says, I believe you. You will exalt me. I believe you. And therefore I'm going to walk, right? For the joy set before me endured the cross, despising the shame. So he believed the Father. It was Jesus' faith that established the righteousness of God because Jesus, God couldn't grab him by his neck and force him to the cross. God had to let Jesus' belief in God and his plan work out and sit back and bite his fingernails and wait for Jesus to go to the cross. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus believed the Father and he willingly gave his life. No man took it from him. He willingly walked to the cross his faith establishes God's righteousness. It says it right there in the text. Even the righteousness of God through the faith of Christ. Jesus. Or Jesus Christ. For everyone, however, it is for everyone who believes the same thing. Right? If you believe this, then you also get the righteousness of God toward you. And he says, for there is no distinct individual. Distinction should be distinct one in the Greek. Distinct one. It's a noun. Singular. There's no distinct person. Why is there no distinct person? I'll tell you why. Verse 23. For all have sinned, at least once, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Anybody glowing? No. Yeah. Other than the makeup and the radiant lotions, right? The oils and lotions you use. Nobody's glowing. No one shines with the Shekinah glory of God from the birth of their mother and their father, which means they have to be made new. I mean, right now, the light is reflecting It's reflecting off, off the but... tiara there. <laughs> you never know. So, we've all shown, so the evidence that we cannot be with God, as Jesus said, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless our perfection is that which is as perfect as the Father himself, we cannot do it unless... We believe the same thing, Him, because we fall short of God's glory. We need His glory back. The only way to get the glory back is to be born from above. Right? However, verse 24 says Jesus is the money. He goes, How are you are being made righteous or proclaimed, you say proclaimed righteous. The, the word dikia, just righteous. You are being righteous. You become righteous as a gift. See that? As a gift. By his favor or his grace. It says, through the redemption or, you know, um, through the redemption or the payment, which is in respect to Christ Jesus. Jesus is the money. He had to be the money. You know why Jesus is the money? Why would Jesus be the money? Because Adam was a human. Right? 
Human for human. He had to to be a human. And he not had to be just a human. He had to be a human worth more than every single human, which is technically impossible if you're a single human. Right? So what makes Jesus more valuable than every single human who's ever been born and never will be born, and every if you went for all eternity without stopping, why would Jesus be worth more than every human? Because otherwise it's not a legitimate payment. Because God, the Word, became flesh. Because the Word got into the body and God is worth more than a man. And therefore the man, Jesus, took on the worth of God. So his death, the Creator, is worth more than the creation. Therefore, his death paid for all men's sins forevermore. Right? So, he was the money. Very simple. That's why he says, whom, verse 25, God displayed whom, or whom God displayed. Whom is the relative pronoun pointing back to Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. The the sentence goes like this. God displayed Jesus Christ publicly. As a sacrifice, real propitiation, old King James word, just means sacrifice, simple, simple word, sacrifice. As a sacrifice in his blood through faith. Whose faith are we talking about here? God's faith, because he's the subject of the sentence. Subject, God, displayed verb. Whom? Direct object, or Jesus Christ. God believed his plan would work. God believed his plan would work. And it worked. He believed it. He's saying, if you believe what I believe, and if you believe what Christ believes, you can be saved. That's what he's going to tell us here in just a second. But why did he do it? Look at the text. It says, this was to demonstrate something. What did God want to demonstrate? Why in the world would God want to demonstrate that he was righteous in time? Because it looked like he was not. Why did it look like he was not? Because God so loved the world. He didn't kill Adam. And even worse, he protected Cain after Cain murdered his brother. He's not just a benevolent, like, oopsie, you know, kind of a day of atonement kind of compassionate God. He watched a child of the devil murder one of his own children that he had made new and had birthed from heaven, whose blood cried out against him, and God protected Cain. Put a mark on him. Go figure that one. What kind of God could be a righteous God and do such a horrible thing? Isn't it amazing you never hear anybody say that? That's, that's a legitimate, by the way, statement. If you had an atheist or some knucklehead out there who hated God, that would be the argument he should be talking about. Not like, why does God allow little people to die and whatever? Well, we're all fallen people, so that's no big deal. We all deserve death. That's no... The real question is, why did God love one man who was fallen? That's the question. That's what makes God look like a loving yet unrighteous God who cannot be trusted. And God says, you can trust me because I finally killed a man. And that man was worth more than all the men who've ever lived. So you can trust me. That's why it says, because in verse 25, in his forbearance, the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. And if you are a righteous God, you cannot just pass over sins previously committed. You just can't pass over them. 
Otherwise, you look unrighteous. That's why God was feverish to demonstrate his righteousness. Why do you think Jesus went to hell to preach God's righteousness to the angels? Because it bugged God and he knew that it was a display in front of all the angels before the fall that he loved Adam. They saw him love Adam. That was the very reason they rebelled, most likely. God is unrighteous. He's not trustworthy. Satan's more righteous than him. Satan wants to kill him. Satan's trying to hold to the law. God won't hold to the law. God's loving, but he's not righteous. So the accusations started flying out. Everybody gets saved. Satan accuses them of the same thing. God's not righteous. You're not righteous. The whole thing's jacked up. And the, the, whole, the, the real kicker in the pants was that when God split hell in half and sent people down to paradise because they weren't, Jesus hadn't paid for them to go to heaven yet, Satan's looking at new creations shining with the Shekinah glory of God. He's looking at himself saying, I don't even have that anymore. In other words, how did you get that? God is not just unrighteous. He's a psycho. Like, he's not allowed to do this stuff. Right? He can't make you shiny like himself. Where's he got the audacity to do that? Then you read 1 Corinthians 15 and it goes, without the resurrection, it's all a bunch of nonsense. Right. Without the resurrection, we're all pitiful and pathetic. I thought it was without the cross. No, because if you get saved from hell, but you don't get made new, you get left alienated from God for the rest of your life, and you never be with Him in heaven without the resurrection. It's not the death that gets you to heaven. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gets you to heaven. You don't believe me? Read Romans chapter 5. Through His death, we're saved from wrath. Through His life, we're saved unto eternal life. It's through the life of Jesus that we're born from above. We need new life. He's the example. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who made the way for us to have new life. He says here, God was so happy to display finally, oh, I'm righteous for the first time. In all these years, I've displayed it. He was always righteous because you know why? Because his plan was going to work. God has the right to forgive here and pay for it 4,000 years later because he doesn't die. Right? Christ was crucified when? Before the foundation of the world, the book of Acts said. So God knew the plan. Who did not know the plan? Everybody. Everybody. (laughs) Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, all the good guys, all the bad guys. Nobody knew of the plan. First Peter says they looked over the shoulder, reading the prophets going, what's God going to reveal? I don't know what's happening. Nobody knew. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Do you realize in Ephesians chapter 3 that the angels had to learn the good news from the apostles? It was the heavenly authorities that learned from Paul this very message. I bet the first time they read Romans, they were like, holy moly, that, that explains everything. <laughs> They're like sitting on the bench. Right, there might be six people in the church, but there's like 6,000 angels just sitting there going, yeah, tell us more, man. That's amazing. <laughs> In the early church. It'd be nice to see that so you can like, turn it on. Like, Whoa, I'm, ed- I'm educating a ton of people. I had no idea. This place is packed. 10,000 angels hanging out trying to hear the good news for the first time. Imagine how many angels are hanging around Peter going, I want to know. Tell me. It's what Paul said. The Holy Spirit through Paul said they learned from the apostles. Look at verse 26. He says, 
He did this, and he repeats himself, for the demonstration of his righteousness. Look at that. This is a very important statement. It's profound. It's donkey kicking the head. He says, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Not my righteousness, his righteousness at this present time. Because it was that time. Jesus said, you know, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It's almost here. The hour is here. It has come. It is finished. He is risen. At that time, that second in history... Going back to Daniel chapter 9, where he said at a, you know, 100, I think it's 173,880 days from the building of the temple, the wall, and the road, and all that stuff, then the Messiah will come and he'll be cut off. That many days, that exact day, Jesus was supposed to come and be killed. The Messiah, the Prince, will be cut off, killed on that day. He says, at that day, at that present time, right then, finally, in history, right? Finally, he says, he demonstrates his righteousness at this present time. For what reason? This is an infinitive clause. So that, for this reason, God or he would be righteous. See that? Right there in the verse. So that he would be just. The word just is the word righteous. God doesn't kill Christ. He falls into sin and becomes a sinner. It's a very important thing for you to understand. He is bound to it. This is why no man is saved apart from the name of Jesus Christ. God himself sustained his righteousness through the death of Jesus Christ because he put it in question when he loved Adam. For God so loved the world, he had to kill Jesus. You understand? He had to. So that he would be righteous. But not only he would be righteous, now there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a mention about us, by the way, on the side. And it says, the one justifying or making righteous the individual, and if you look in the column of your Bibles or the Greek, it says, who is out of the faith of Jesus. Not in Jesus, again, terrible translation. It's not a dative. In the Greek is a genitive, and the Greek was possessive. Jesus is faith. So if I believe what Jesus believes, if my faith comes out of, ek, out of Jesus' faith, I can be saved. I can obtain God himself's righteousness. Right? I can obtain that righteousness by being born from above. Two ways. First, proclamation, pay for my sins. But that doesn't stop there. He has to circumcise my heart, right? Tear out the spirit, put it to death. You're baptized into Christ through the death, right? Maybe you don't know you've died with him, right? And then you have to be raised up with Christ and seated with him. All of that results in you being not only his paid for sins, but your spirit being made new and you have a true citizenship, which is why Colossians chapter 3 talks about your citizenship and that you're, you're a heavenly citizen. Therefore, think as a heavenly citizen. First Peter says the same thing. You're a heavenly citizen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, right? He called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who you are. This is who you are. One of the things that, um, that, that trips people up in their brain is this. You think, and this is, this is common to a lot of religious backgrounds. You think, many people have been taught their whole life, that you actually go from bad to better in your spirit and somewhat in the flesh by some people's wrong presuppositions by folding chairs and giving and reading the Bible. And praying, you actually believe that your flesh 
and your spirit goes from bad to better, from less glorious to more glorious. Like you have a 20% down payment from God in glory. And then you actually work your way by folding chairs and showing up to church and praying and giving. And somehow you go, beep, 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 beep. You're more glorious now. Beep, beep. Oh, you said a bad word or you sinned. Oh, you lost some glory. And now you go, oh, I'm doing good works again. And now you go more glorious. Oh, you said something, you did something. Oh, you lost some glory. And you just work your way up. And it's called, quote unquote, progressive sanctification, which is a satanic lie. You don't go from bad to better through your works. It's absolutely ludicrous. You go maturity through your works. You mature in who you already are. It's as ludicrous as saying that that, where's the baby? Where's the baby? The baby didn't pop out with all of its limbs, right? One eye, no arms, no legs, half a nostril. And the more the kid obeys the mom, it starts popping up and becomes more human, right? And no, right? It's born a wallypog and it just starts popping out arms and eyes and hair, everything. Because the kid said, yes, mom. Oh, you said, yes, mom. Oh, there's an arm. Oh, yeah. Open your mouth and, and eat right. Okay, yes, mom. Oh, there's another arm. It's the stupidest thing ever. You're a new creation born from above, made of God's own divine nature. Right? Created katathion, according to God. That's why in Ephesians 4.24 it says, you're created according to God or in the likeness of God. Like God. It's done. Salvation is done. That's why you're saved. You're saved because it's a finished work. So you cannot take pride in your works, as Paul said. All you can do is realize this, that your works are, if they're done by the belief that God did all the work, if you believe he's made you new and you walk according to that calling, you're living up to who you are. As we were talking, she says, how does that, how does that, uh, that, what does that verse mean? What not? I said, walk yeah, walk worthy according to your calling. The reason you walk worthy according to your calling is that you're called a child of God, a son of God, a new creation, a glorious bride of Christ and co-heir with Jesus Christ, right? Walk like that. Notice, I beat my body, I make it my slave. Paul's an idiot a psycho, or he is separate than his body. And he takes his body and he beats it and he subjects it to himself, right? Which is Romans 12, 1, right? Present, this is your spiritual service of worship. What is it? That you present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. Is your body living? It's a body of death, a body of sin. It's not alive, but you're supposed to present it as if it's alive. Why would I present it if it's alive when it's not alive? Because my spirit is alive. Right? Romans 8, 10, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's a simple summary. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin. But I'm supposed to present my body. My spiritual worship is this. If you want to know what you're here for, it is to present your body as if it's alive when it's not. And holy, though it's not. The proof is, we're all going to die. If you somehow affected the righteousness of your body through works, you would get younger and better and more glorious. But no one has ever done that. Not without a little surgery. (laughs) And then you still die. Right? So this is it. 
You get God's righteousness. Look at Ephesians real quick. We'll end. You get God's righteousness. Ephesians 2. Verse 19, he says he did, his, he, he did something towards you that was amazing. He exerted the greatness of his power according to the, to the surpassing greatness of his might. God used all of his power in a moment in chapter 1, verse 19 to do something to you and to me at salvation. An amazing thing. And he wants us to know what that thing is. You say, what is it that God did that took all of God's power in a moment? Because when you do something according to the surpassing greatness of your power, according to the strength of your might, that means you do all of your power in a moment. It's one rep. The strength of your might, right? The strength of all of your might. Ah, ah. You know, just everything you got in one moment. God says he did something to me and to you according to the strength of his might. Everything he's got in one moment, he did it to you in a moment. And you didn't even know what happened. You were like, whatever. Nothing, you're like the wind. The wind blew, the tree moved. You didn't even know it took place. You knew it because maybe at salvation your eyes lifted up and you felt peace and you felt happiness. But what you didn't realize is God exerted the greatest force he's ever done, more than all the creation to make everything. It was easy to create the world. You speak that into existence. It's not easy to make one new child of God. And the example of that was in 120 when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand. But in chapter 2, he skips down and has the same conversation. He says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us up with him in the heavens. In the exact same way that God took all of his power and made Jesus' new body, he took all of his power and made every single individual child, new child of God's spirit. Your spirit is made from God's most powerful act. Why would that be so? Because you are made on God's own DNA. You have to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. There's no other way. Right? There's no other way. And so he says, so the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Was he saying, I can't wait to show you what I've got for you, my children. I've done these wonderful things and you're going to be amazed. But then he goes, he says, for by grace you've been saved, in case you didn't read that already. For by grace you've been saved through belief. So how do I get saved? Believe me. Right? Believe what? Believe what I've done. Well, how do I believe it? You got to know it. You can't just believe air. You can't repeat a prayer. That's not a person. It doesn't say repeat a prayer. It says believe something, right? It, when you see God, you can stand there alone, in your nakedness, alone. And the guy who said the prayer that you repeated isn't going to be there. Therefore, you're alone. You either believed it on your own or you didn't. He says that it is not of yourself, it is God's gift, Right? Not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's true. Salvation, you can do nothing. All you can do is believe what God did. That's it. That's all you got. And what he did was amazing. Not only paid for sins, he made you new. And he says, why? He said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. 
Created in Christ Jesus is, means this, in respect to him. When you see the word in Christ Jesus, it's in respect to him. You're created in respect to him. When you're created in respect to something, what are you created? Like him. Naturally then for good works, which God preordained for us to walk in them. I'm going to read a little part of verse 4. Verse 24. Even though this is a beautiful whole section here, we don't have time. I don't want to go into it because it would take us a while and it would be great for another time. But He's talking about laying aside the old man in verse um, behavior of the old man in verse 22. Why can you not lay aside the old man? He says lay aside the behavior of the old man. Why can't you lay aside the old man? Because the old man doesn't exist. If you're in Christ, the old man is gone. Verse 22. All you can do is lay aside the behavior of the old man. But then he says, and be renewed in your mind or the spirit's brain or spirit's thinking part. Right? The, the spirit has a brain. We don't know what it's called. It's called the mind or the nose. So the spirit has a mind. Be renewed. How do you renewed? Don't be transformed or conform to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Through the word of God. The, the, the true knowledge of Christ or spiritual truth. So you're renewed through knowing God's gospel and his administration. Then it says, and put on the new self, the new anthropos, the new man, which here it says, in the likeness of God. And most translations are pretty much saying the same thing. You have to ask yourself, do I believe all this stuff? Which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, or true in the Greek, true righteousness and true holiness. So my new man, that is the person born from above, was created katatheon, according to God. Right? If you were made according to metal, what are you? If you're made according to wood, what are you? If you're made according to God, what are you? You're God-like. Right? Not no. I don't even be careful about that. That's nothing to be careful about. However... He did withhold certain attributes, right? I don't know everything. I'm not everywhere and I'm not all powerful. But I know the, way, the attributes he did give me because he defines them in the text. Righteous, holy, pure, perfect, eternal, right? Blameless. Does he ever write to the sinners at Ephesus? Who does he write to? To the saints. Then why in the world do we call ourselves sinners? He never calls us that. You were a sinner saved by grace. After salvation, you were a saint sustained by grace. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. Your flesh is sinful, but your flesh isn't you. And you wanna, you'll find that out real quick when you die. When you die, your body falls over and you'll realize, oh, I thought that was a person. That, no, that, the brain tricked me. And your spirit will be standing there and go realize, oh, I'm a shiny, glorious thing. I didn't realize that. Yeah, my hip and my elbow looks good. Feels good now. It's loose. I feel loose. He says, you're created in true righteousness and true holiness. And let me point to the fact of the, the application then, right? Verse 25, therefore, lay aside falsehood and speak truth to one. Why would you lay aside falsehood? You, do you not lie because it's wrong? You don't lie because of wrong or right. You don't lie because... God doesn't lie and he's my father and I'm created in his likeness or his essence. 
spiritually. And if I believe that, then I'm not going to lie because my father doesn't lie. And it's not productive for me to lie. It doesn't build up the body for me to lie. It doesn't do anything for me to lie because it doesn't represent my newly created spirit inside. It's amazing how people forget that therefore, the therefore points back. What's the therefore, therefore? It points back, right? And the whole discussion here is the same thing. Don't do this because it doesn't make sense. And he climaxes that in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, because he just kind of read and read, reading it all, therefore be imitators of God as beloved. Come on, Matt. I'm trying. As <laughs> beloved. Come on, Matt. As beloved children. As beloved children. Do you see the point? Why, what am I doing by not lying and telling the truth? Am I doing what's right and I'm being a good boy? Am I following the law? No. It means nothing. The law means nothing. What means something to me? I'm being like my father. My father doesn't lie. Therefore, I don't lie. My father doesn't sin. Therefore, I'm not going to proactively do that. My father doesn't curse people. He's, he wishes and blesses them to be saved. He shows grace to people, therefore show grace. Therefore, as beloved children, imitate your father, right? What am I doing in my walk? Am I gaining glory through my, like from bad to better? No. What am I doing? I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing. Second Corinthians says I'm going from glory to glory. What does a child do? A child goes from glory to glory as they grow they grow in wisdom, stature. They grow in dignity. They grow in understanding how to relate to their parents. And they grow in a, they're, they're more glorious and more strong, physically capable. The earthly child is the, is the picture of the, of the spiritual being's maturation. The spirit does not change into something else. The kid doesn't change into something else. It just matures. And the spirit doesn't go backward. You can't go from... Better to bad. You can have to go from glory to less glorious. You're already fit for heaven. There's nothing that needs to be done to you when you die. Like, oh, I'm going to work my word. It's a work in progress. And when I die, God's just going to finish me off. No, he's not. You're done. You'll get there and realize how much you've matured. Your rewards will be based upon how much you've matured. Your works will be burned up that were of no value and your rewards will be based upon the actual works of faith. But nothing else is done. You're done. You're done. There's only one way, only thing to do is just give thanks, right? Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks. That's why it says he desires the fruit of the lips of thanksgiving, right? I think it's what, 1 Timothy 6 or something like that. Later on, he says, naturally, you wouldn't do all these other things, blah, blah, blah. Why? Therefore, verse 7 of Ephesians 5. He goes, because you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you, God is light and in him there is no darkness. If you're born from above, you're, you're a child of light. You are his child. Right? Does that make sense? In the Old Testament, it said God is holy and there is no other beside Him. Now it's God is holy and He's got a bunch of kids. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a big family now. 
Jesus is holy right there with him and all the bride of Christ and everybody else. He stands alone as the one who knows all things and is all powerful and he's the head of all things and he's the one who will receive all the glory and honor even above Christ in the end because Christ himself will subject himself to the Father as Philippians says and we will fully subject ourselves to the Father as well. Now look at Romans 10, 9 and 10 and let's just close out. Going back to the beginning. Vizini. Go back to the beginning. You said to go back to the beginning. We go back to the beginning. Vizini. Princess Bride reference. As a footnote. In chapter 10. Of Romans, this is a little summary, it's nice because even though this is out of the context of the flow of the gospel, he's kind of given all this data up to this point. And he says, um, he's testifying about Israel. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's important to understand a lot of people have a zeal for God. Oh, they just love God so much, they just love God. Very few people love God enough to blow themselves up. But some people do it, and that doesn't mean they love God, right? They have a zeal for God. And they're ignorant as a stone. When they blow themselves up, they go, oh, snap. Because they see that they're wrong and then they go straight to hell. So, you know, in the old, in people die, the zealots, all these people today doing crazy stuff. They have a zeal for God. A lot of people have a zeal for God. Oh, they just love God so much. They just dedicate themselves so much. A lot of people throughout history have had a zeal for God. It means nothing. If you don't believe what's true that God has done, your zeal for your for the God you have made in your head based upon your religious background will not save you. If you do not believe what God says He did, you don't communicate back to Him on a sit down, you alone, have a coffee table discussion. I'm going to have, go, have coffee with God, have some tea, whatever, have some water, have an ice cream. Whatever it is, I'm going to sit down with God, I'm going to have dinner, I'm going to talk, and I'm going to tell Him, I believe you from my heart. Not with my mouth alone. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say, first before I even talk to him, I say, do I actually believe this? And this is so important. The people, what, what do kids do? You like this? Yeah. You want to go here? Yeah. yeah. Can dad pick up the house? Yeah. You know, people are so quick to say, yeah, I believe this. You believe it? Yeah. <laughs> Did you sit and ask yourself, do you actually believe God's integrity was in question? Do you actually believe that God from his own divine nature if you will, makes with all of his power in one moment, makes one child of God from the most powerful act he can possibly do. In one moment, he makes you new and you didn't even know it took place. Do you really believe that happened? First, you have to read this to believe it and sit down and think and ask yourself, do I actually believe this crazy story that he says is foolishness to the world? Because it sounds like foolishness. Do I actually believe it? And if I do believe it, if I understand it and I believe it, then I'm going to, after I've chosen to contemplate and be honest with myself on whether I actually believe this, then in humble contriteness, say, okay, now I know I need, what I need to talk about with God. And it ain't some formula of verse 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not that simple. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Why did he have to kill him? What's the whole point? What, why did he have to get to be Lord? You have to have a conversation with your mouth after believing it in your heart. That means you have to stop and read it to believe it, settle that, and then have this discussion. 
I do believe that, that you sent your son based upon your plan. I do believe that he was born of a virgin. He had to be. A, it was a dirt body. It was an atom body. I believe he was sufficient to pay for sins. I believe I'm a sinner. Didn't my sins can be paid for? I believe that by dying, him willingly of his own belief, dying that he paid for sins. You didn't force him. I believe that. I believe that by dying, it resulted in God, your righteousness. I believe it resulted in your righteousness being established, Father, in time, that you're no longer in question on whether you are a righteous God. And I believe that after that, you can make me righteous. That justifies me being made righteous, being born from above. And I believe that you kept your promise to the Word before He got into the body and you named it Jesus. I believe you kept your promise and you exalted Him and you made Him Lord after you raised Him. And I believe He sits at your right hand right now. And I believe that when you make me new, I also sit on the throne with Him. We don't stand before the throne. Everybody got that wrong. We're not before the throne. We're on the throne. We're children. We're not servants. We're not the peasants. We're on the throne. We judge with Him, right? We judge the angels. We, he says in John 5, I will not judge you on that day. I'll call Moses out of the crowd and he'll judge you particularly. I'll say, Moses, come on out of the crowd. You're going to be the one to judge this crowd. The Pharisees in his day, Moses himself, it says, in whom you put your faith, your trust, will judge you. We're on the throne. We're seated on the throne. That's who you are. Walk according to that worthiness. Right? Believe that. Talk to God about that. Say, I believe that. You rose him. You rose me. You killed him. You killed me. Confess it with your mouth. It says results in salvation. It's right to believe it, but it doesn't save you just to believe it. The demons believe. Faith without works is dead. What's the faith? Confession. What do you say? Well, what if he's mute? You better have sign language. What if he doesn't have fingers? You better wiggle your toes. What if he's almost paralyzed? You better blink those dadgum eyes and, 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 and like... Dit, 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 dit. Do something. Morris code yourself into having a conversation with God. You better use that flesh in whatever way you can to communicate back to God that you believe this message. Use your nose if you need to. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, use your nose. I believe. Because I've talked to a lot of people on their deathbed who I knew they could hear me. I knew they could hear me. And I've had varying results. Some people, this message upsets. As crazy as that is, I know they can hear me because their breathing changes. And they get <gasps> angry. And some who were nervous got peaceful. On their deathbed, some who I never heard they physically responded to the message with their breath. Right? You see those who believe and those who don't. It's amazing those who don't actually get angry on their deathbed. But he says, if you confess this, you'll be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God births you from above? Do you believe that it, took all, it takes all of His power to do it in a moment? Do you believe that Jesus actually does justify the love of God? Do you believe that God is righteous because of it? Do you believe that He makes you new? Yeah. If you do, it's, all, it's, not, it's not important to have that conversation once. It's important to constantly give thanks for that. 
That's why it's a life of giving thanks. It's not like I had the one conversation. I told you I, I love you when we got married and if it changes, I'll let you know. No. <laughs> this is a conversation we constantly have. Right? I can't help it. The gospel never gets old to me. Christ never gets old to me. My relationship never gets dull. It's exciting. I've been preaching for 35 years almost. This is, I'm just excited right now as I've always been. I don't, there's songs I don't even remember that I used to love. Right? The gospel doesn't get old. No matter rich or poor, many or few, doesn't get old. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. We are rich. Regardless of what this world in this world mirror shows, we are rich because we are citizens of heaven. Those who believe. So there's our message. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful time of worship. I pray that it is honoring to you, that it was fun to the hearts, exciting to the hearts uh, that are here, that it lifts up their, their joy, gives results in thanksgiving, results in a more profound relationship of excitement, and that you would strengthen our faith in that, that we would stand in that. We don't need to um, give explanations. We just need to stand, represent, rejoice, show the favor to others you've shown to us, show the kindness to others you've shown us, proclaim the good news. It's truly good news that you've proclaimed to us. I pray that you would be blessed here because you are the blessed one from whom all good things come. That our hearts will leave here tonight rejoicing, lifted up, unified in the truth. And that you feel exalted and the angels rejoice. Every time they hear this message, may they sing a praise to you and honor you and thank you for this great, great news. And we look forward to singing that song with Jesus that he talks about there in Hebrews. He'll lead us in worship. He'll lead us in a great song of thanksgiving as his brethren and his bride. And we'll give glory and honor to you and all praise to you in the end for this great plan and great work you've done. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.